welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear stories of someone brave enough to bear it all. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Welcome to the Naked Podcaster. I'm Jen, and today I'm here with Linda, and you go by Lynn, and pronounce your last name for me. It's actually Forrester hyphen Patoko because I was married in May, and so I took on the last name of my husband. Patoko. I would have butchered it. I mean, yeah, but it's easy. I was making it much harder. So why the month of May? What does that have to do with uh, Well, because we went through an annulment process through the Catholic Church, and that was the first date that we could probably come up with, and it was a two-and-a-half-year waiting period. So we wanted the first date to be the most uh, important and the most uh, readable, and so that was it. I know we're going to hit that later on in the show. <laughs> I am sure. Okay. <laughs> Where are you located? I'm located in Houston, Texas. It's oh, a sub- Yeah, it's Houston, Texas. Um, beautiful weather right now, I have to yeah. say. I'm in Reno. Uh, I went running in 30 degrees this morning, and oh, it was wow. 16 on Saturday. Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> My yeah. daughter's in San Antonio. I'm flying there the first of the year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I- been there i know exactly where that is and yeah going out the year. yeah just a f- just a few hours away from you yep yep tell me who you are and what you're doing right now i know some things but i don't know very much well um i'm 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 69 years old turned 69 this year uh i uh am retired and i spend a lot of time doing a lot of volunteer work i'm with the Lay Missionaries of Charity. I don't know if you know that what that is, but Missionary no. Charities is Mother Teresa's order. Okay. And so in every Catholic uh, religious order, not everyone, but in some of them, there's third orders. And okay. so uh, you have the third order Carmelites. And in my case, I am a lay missionary of charity. So I do a lot of, I do a lot of uh, work at the church and um, I write, I teach, uh, I mentor I give spiritual guidance uh, to a degree, and um, I'm a, I'm learning how to be a wife all over again after 19 years, and I'm a mother and a grandmother. Yay! Yeah. Tell me what goes into being a lay missionary. What does that look like? Well, here's the deal. A lot because Catholicism itself is mm-hmm. often attacked, and I say that very openly. I'm sure all other faiths are too, but. Under Catholicism, we have a lot of religious orders. You have the sisters, and then you have the nuns. The sisters are sisters that teach. Nuns are tons that are clo- uh, nuns that are cloistered. In this case, with Mother Teresa's order, it's a charism of helping the sick, helping the poor, attending to those that are very destitute. And so, as a lay person who might be married or single, we give to that order whatever our charism allows us to do. If I'm married, my charism is to my family and then to help. If I'm single, I can branch it out. Wow. Yeah. So it changed for you then if you are remarried. Yes. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah. And, uh, but it was a good thing because I think God's hand was in this relationship after 40 years. So I do believe that, which prompted the article that I wrote for the book. Uh, Let's jump into that. Yeah. Well, um, 40 years went by. Uh, This person that had trained me, I knew him. I knew his wife. She was actually in my wedding to the man that I was introduced to by the husband that I'm married to now. In other words, it was his best friend. So uh, he is um, a a very giving person, very loving. And uh, we've just been good friends throughout 40 years, but we lost contact. And we touched bases again, and then we lost contact again. And then the second time that we got together, it was, I believe it was God's hand in it. Yeah, definitely. So, and that was in 2015. Tell me about, I know we're going to jump around in time a little bit, which is great. Mm -hmm. That doesn't bother me at all. You were published in the book, Chaos of Clarity. Uh Uh-huh. Right. And how did that come about? Because I've heard some interesting stories on how people connected. Well, well, you know, the thing of it is, is that I began writing. I I love writing. I actually started writing as a a teenager who was in a foster care system. I went from Catholic orphanage to juvenile hall to um, 
foster care. And so I began writing at the age of 12 as therapy. Fast forward to where I am today, and, and probably about two years ago, I started writing for Biz Catalyst 360. And as a result of writing for that, I wrote on life experience, raw life experience. And this particular story came about as a result of the publishers who I guess decided to want to collect sacred stories of transformation, which is how the book came about. And so all of yeah. these authors that are in there have all experienced some kind of change in their life or something right. that's a miracle X. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, it's, it's been interesting. Um, I'm interviewing a several people that were part of the book because the stories are are so perfect for the podcast and it's interesting starting to figure out how people have connected correct to be do be part of the book so that's interesting let's jump back in time because you we know that you're catholic we know that you're divorced mm-hmm. <laughs> we know you're remarried to someone mm-hmm. you knew for 40 years mm-hmm. uh you were so back in um before foster care Mm-hmm. They did more orphanage style. Where were you raised? Well, I was actually born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was born okay. into a family of, uh, we had six siblings. And I was the fifth of six. So my younger brother, who has since passed, came along after me 18 months later. But um, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my mother and father were just not good parents. And uh, But that's not where it stayed as far as in my heart and in my mind for them. But at the time, they were not. And so uh, the authorities came in. They separated us. My oldest sister got married, married into uh, the answer family, um, race car drivers. My other sister was shipped off to my sister's uh, sister. And my brother went to live with my sister's brother in Hawaii. And so it left the three lower ones, myself, my middle brother, and my little brother, kind of off on her own. And uh, so the authorities came in and they separated us. And my younger brother and I went one way and my middle brother went another way. And so we were placed in a Catholic orphanage home until they could figure out what was going on. with my And that mom. was pretty common to, mm-hmm. um, to uh, one, it wasn't as common to remove kids because I was born in 70. So we're mm-hmm. 20 years apart. Right. And I remember CPS coming to our house and driving away and thinking, why in the world aren't we in their car? Mm-hmm. Because even in the seventies, it wasn't super commonplace that they removed kids. So yeah. earlier than that, there were more orphanages and it was rare. So I'm, I'm yeah. so surprised you were removed. Yeah. Well, we were removed because we hadn't seen our parents for three days. And so there was no care given in, uh, back then in the 50s, I mean, you're talking about, mm, you're talking about 1955. Right. And uh, so it's, uh, even things have changed so drastically in yeah. so many areas and in so many ways from the early 50s into where we are today, it, even the 70s, because oh, when yeah. I did law enforcement in the 70s, uh, it was very rare. So there was a yeah. gradual acceptance of everything. So you hadn't seen your parents for three days. What did life, but how old were you then? Um, I was, at the time, I was five years old. My brother was three and a half. And my middle brother, who was five years older than me, was, I think, uh, seven, five, six, seven, eight. No, no, he was 10. Yeah. Okay. So. And you guys hadn't seen your parents in three days. So what had led up to that? Uh, alcohol. Uh, they just, uh, didn't know how to be parents. And my dad, um, as loving of a father as I think he could have been, his big thing was, uh, gambling. And, uh, he spent time a lot away from home. And my mother decided that she wasn't going to stay at home with the kids and she was going to join him. And that's the way it ended. So, yeah. Well, that was nice. I I mean, it's always astonishing to me. Like, how is that the thought process? Where in this whole situation, there's seven kids. Right. Where in this whole situation is that even on the list of things that you decide to do? That's, uh, yes. Yeah, Yeah. it's just just crazy. And uh, as a result, uh, we were taken out of the Catholic orphanage home 
Okay. And my dad moved to California and my mother who couldn't let go of him followed a year later with us. And we ended up in a little apartment in Huntington Park. And as a matter of fact, I went there about, about a month ago just to see how the whole area has changed and it's not even recognizable. Mm. But um, my mom, uh, she just, uh, she was, she was sick. I, I, alcoholism is a sickness mm -hmm. and uh, I drink wine. I drink wine. You know, I love my red wine and stuff, but I do believe that there is a sickness there. And yeah. um, even though it was abusive, I told myself, Jen, early on, and this was, I think, a grace from God, that I knew the difference between abuse and sickness. And my mom, I was able to see that. So in other words, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that she died when I was, when I was 13. I actually found her after she'd been dead for eight hours. And um, I was going to go over and see her. I was living with my dad. This was after I got released from the uh, foster care system. Because back in the day, you're talking about time again, in the early, um, in the early 60s, mm -hmm. they uh, wanted you to be able to be released. If, you were gonna, if your father was in custody of you, you could be released back to him at the age of 13 because then they felt that you were okay to handle yep. yourself without a female overseer, I guess, basically. It's not, I mean, I, I did, I was a foster parent for 12 years and then I trained foster parents. And so mm -hmm. I've only been out of that realm for the last six years. So pretty recently, yeah. comparatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And the same thing when the foster care system is reunifying a child with the parents. Right. Around age 13 is when they ask them they have the choice to reunify it because I had um, my son, Christopher, he came to us when he was nine or 10. And then by the time he was 12, it was permanent. He was permanently with us. Right. And somewhere he was about 14 when the state decided to try reunification with the younger kids. Right. And he was like, Nope, I'm staying where I'm at. And he aged out with me and sure. um, yeah. And so it's still, I mean, and I think that that's good to some degree because at a certain age, geez, you might want to ask the kids what they want. Well, that's, that was moving on. But back yeah. then, they didn't ask you. They just told you, you yeah. went where you were going and that's it. Right. That's true. It is moving on in that regard because, yes, you're right. Um, yeah, 13, you were pretty much. I mean, I was a latchkey kid somewhere between the age of six and nine. So right. and that's ridiculous to me. Right. And that was in this, and that was not uncommon. I, it's not like I'm alone in that. So right. definitely things have changed some for the better, some for the worse, but so you're, you went into the orphanage and then when your mom went to California and followed your dad, she took you and brought you there. She, well, yeah, she moved there with my younger brother, myself and my middle brother. And we ended up in Huntington Park, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, went to school. Um, but it wasn't, it was, it was very much uncommon, not uncommon. It was very much common. We lived in an upstairs apartment and often my younger brother and I would, um, who was 18 months younger than I was, we got to California, I think when I was six and a half and, okay. um, and it was not uncommon for my mom, uh, to leave the house and us not see her for two days. We would, my brother and I would sit up on the, on the windowsill and we would look out and we'd see our, we'd see our mom walk and disappear around the corner. And then we wouldn't see her for, you know, a couple, two, two days sometimes. Uh, but the other part of it was, is that my mom, I, I don't know what it was. I mean, I still haven't figured it out, but I kind of understand it now more because of my faith. But my mom would come home sometimes if she did come home at two or three in the morning and I'd hear her come up the stairs and I knew that if I didn't get the heck out of there, that um, I was going to be the focus of her rage. And I think her rage was with my dad. And um, so I would head down the back stairs out of the uh, back porch and I'd head over to a uh, park that was maybe maybe two car lengths, three car lengths away mm -hmm. that had a round berm around it. It was a inner circle. And when I went and saw it not too long ago, now there's bars up there and there's all kinds of stuff, but I would lay up against the berm and I could see my mom on the porch and I would just wait and wait until she went upstairs. And then I knew it was safe to go back home. 
Holy yeah, this cow. Could be at two, this could be at two or three o'clock in the morning. And this is how I ended up in juvenile hall because I would run out at two or three in the morning and uh, I finally got picked up by the authorities. So, and I was about seven at the time. So. so you're about seven when you go to California with her. No, no, no. I'm five and a half when I go to California. Okay. And I'm seven when I get picked up to go into juvenile hall. And so from juvenile hall, I was in juvenile hall from seven till about nine. And then I was in foster care from nine to age 13. That's rare more now like juvenile hall you wouldn't have you don't like, even hear the term juvenile hall anymore I you know it's gone so far the other way i don't think mm -hmm. it's healthy um as a parent now you can't call and say look i'm really having an issue with my right. child and they're yeah. headed down a bad you can't they do no. not care yeah um you have to rack up uh enough um you have to you have to get caught you have to get caught doing bad enough things right. <laughs> before they'll even like by that time mm -hmm. you have kids that are like so far gone. Right. Um, so where your description is like seven to nine, what was juvenile hall like? It was, it was horrible. I mean, uh, I came down with German measles while I was there and I remember we had a dorm and I remember the dorm there was like 12 beds and uh, we were, we had to go to bed at a certain time. The lights had to be out at a certain time. We had to get up at a certain time. And every Wednesday and Sunday, there was a bundle of clothes that was placed outside the door in the hall with your name on it. And okay. you knew that that was your change of clothes. So you'd bring them in. Sometimes I'd have a slip because you're, again, you're talking in the mid fifties, right? Um, late, late fifties. And I would have maybe uh, a slip that was longer than the dress. And I'd have to sit there and wait. If you talked after the lights went out, the matron would come in and, and she would discipline you. Um, but I remember being woken up one night and my chest being looked at. And it was because they had determined that I had come down with German measles. So I remember being pulled out of the bed and going down the stairs and told specifically not to touch the railing and then being placed in a room of solitary confinement until I was transferred over to, to the uh, county hospital. And I remember them placing me in a chair and putting pins in the top of my head to determine if the German measles had affected my brain. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's crazy, and I don't think they do that anymore. I'm but that's what they <laughs> I hope not. Then. Yeah, so uh, as a result of that, I, I overcame the German measles and um, went back to juvenile hall. And But I had a certain around, amount of rage, too. I mean, I remember being down in the rec room one night, or one afternoon, rather. We'd have to get up at a certain time, go down and eat. And I just could not handle the food. They had given us um, oatmeal. To this day, I cannot eat oatmeal without having those thoughts. But... Uh, you couldn't leave without finishing your meal. And so as a reason, I mean, as a result, I, I got sick in the bowl and I had to sit there and either I was gonna eat it or I was gonna sit there until it was gone. Well, needless to say, I outdid the bowl and uh, I was put in solitary confinement for a couple of days for, di for discipline purposes. And so, um, yeah, and, and that day that I was down in the rec room, I've always had, I've always looked out for the underdog. I've always, I guess maybe because of my younger brother too. And uh, when I saw this one girl getting just picked on and then being surrounded by some of the girls that were there, there was a certain amount of rage that came up within me. And I went over and I just remember fighting my way through that circle around her and stood in front of her. And then as I turned, I started getting pummeled and uh, I, fought my way out of it. But by the time it was all over, it was because we had two or three matrons that had come in and broke up the fight. And again, so it's uh, a solitary confinement. So yeah, I got used to that. <laughs> you got used to solitary confinement. Oh yeah. Got used to it, but wouldn't, wouldn't uh, recommend it for people because <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I can see how you would hit a point in that situation that that would be a relief of like good put me there it was there. quiet it was peacefulness it was quiet and yeah. and that kind of 
but it also was, it also formed in my mind justice and compassion. And so when I went into, when I became a, when I was a single mom, um, that's a whole nother story, but when I was a single mom, um, I went into nursing and I went into nursing specifically because I had the desire to care for people because my mom had passed away and I knew I could, I, I just wanted to, to take care of people. But I was also struggling as a single mom. And in the early 70s, uh, you couldn't make the kind of money that you can make today, obviously. And I was, like I said, a single mom. And so I was always looking to make more money in order to give her the life that I never had. And so uh, that's how I got into law enforcement, because I was working as a supervisor for a group of doctors as a LVN. And then um, as a result of that, we used to have uh, deputies come in with their wives. And I got to talking to a couple of deputies and a couple of the women. And they said, well, have you thought about joining the search and rescue team? And I go, well, what's that? Oh. And they said, oh, it's, you know, it, all you have to do is have medical background and you become a reserve deputy and you can work one week in a month and you, they pay you one week in a month. And I went, I can do that not realizing that that was really my career that I was destined for. So we'll get there. Yeah. I want to jump back first. So you're in, you're in juvenile hall until um, you're nine. And then what made them transfer you to foster care at that age? My father, my father, who was a very heavy gambler and uh, a, what I call a functioning alcoholic. Of course, uh, my mom hadn't passed away yet, but he would go and hang out at this particular bar and uh, there was a uh, guy that would come in who was married to a woman and they had seven children. And so they got to talking and uh, he said, you know what, my wife would be more than glad to take your daughter and have her come and live with us until she's able to be given to you because I was awarded to the court uh, until right. I was 13. And so um, that's how it happened. And my dad took him up on the offer. And the next thing I knew I was, taken out of juvenile hall and I was placed in this, uh, this family. How was that? Very bad. <laughs> very, very, I had a feeling it wasn't going to be a silver yeah, lining. There was a lot, there was a lot of sexual abuse. Um, I, I probably learned more about the birds and the bees by the time I was 10 than I should have ever known in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you, uh, but then, and I'll, I'll just interject this real quick before I go on. That's how I know God was in my life from the very, very beginning, way, way back. He, it was almost like he had this, this hook on my collar. And every time I would get in this mud puddle of, of quicksand and start to, to disappear, he'd pull me out again. So uh, when I got assigned to this family, I didn't know any better. I mean, I had never experienced anything other than just the alcoholism and the physical abuses, you know, as far as like getting beatings or whatever. But um, in this particular household, I went from the frying pan into the fire. And as, but later in my career of law enforcement, this life uh, really was a, a godsend in the way that I was able to help other girls that had been molested or sexually abused or whatever. So, uh, and he fell asleep. Uh, the, the gentleman who ended up being with my dad and uh, taking me into this family. He fell asleep one night and um, almost caught the house on fire. So we all had left and the mother and the father of the woman lived across the street. So I became a ward of them. They were grandma and grandpa Katze, you know. Mm -hmm. So I became a ward of them. And, and the rest of the family kind of separated and, and split out. But other, she had eight children. And so the women who were older would come in just in and out, in and out with their husbands, their families, because they weren't working. They, maybe they weren't making enough money. And so they would stay with her for a while. And as a result, it's one particular couple that came in and he, he was the sexual abuser. So yeah, to not just myself, but to the other girls that were in the, um, that were in the uh, care of the grandmother. Yeah. Did you gain friendships along the way or anybody that you felt like was on your side? Cause it sounds, no. you did. It's because no. it sounds like you're like going it alone. So yeah, no, 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 there was no, there was no one there. Mm -mm. 
uh, there was there was something there was something spiritual there i will tell you that but as far as a, as a as a person that i could go to i mean i learned at that time being in the foster care system with grandma and grandpa what catholicism was all about that's where i learned my prayers that's okay. where i made my first holy communion and stuff but um as far as anything else no and saw a lot of the dysfunction you know yep. so i mean you're talking about somebody that would come in uh this particular uh, man that was married to one of the daughters uh, they were all supposed to be out one night celebrating and he comes back to the house i'm babysitting i'm 12 years old and uh got like five or six of the little ones underneath of me two to three of us were kind of close in age and uh he comes walking in and and we're all surprised because we were looking for his wife to come in as well and uh he decided to tell us that he was going to teach us how babies are born and so in that regard, uh, my heart just sunk and I knew kind of what was coming, but I wasn't quite sure. And with the kids, with the younger girls, we had to put the little ones to bed. And basically what it boiled down to, he sat on the couch and masturbated and told us what the semen does and all of that stuff. So at 12 years old, that's why I said, I knew way too much. I knew more about the birds and the bees than, than I should have. And my heart went out to the younger girls. Uh, yeah. which I became very protective over. Yeah. I can understand that part. Yeah. yeah. When you turned 13, were you relieved to be given back into custody of your dad? I, I was, I was, I was because there was a certain amount of independence, mm -hmm. but I also knew that I was responsible for my dad and my two brothers that lived there. Uh, I became housekeeper, cook. Uh, I couldn't cook very well, but at the time, and go to school and do my studies and, and, and try to be the normal person that I could be. So, yeah. In any time in here, what normal kid things did you even do? I'm thinking what like normal? art and sports and playing at the park and laughing with friends. And is that well, kind I, I, yeah, I had some girlfriends, but they, believe it or not they were they were also from a dysfunctional family so we kind of the three of us kind of hung out right but we didn't really have i mean by this time you're talking mm, 1965 64 mm -hmm. so um i was in high school i, I actually I, I was in junior high mm -hmm. and i actually had my first job working in winchell's donuts i'd get up oh. at four o'clock in the morning and I'd go over and I'd make these donuts until about eight o'clock mm -hmm. and then I would go on to school. And right. um, in my younger years, as far as with my little brother, when my mom was gone sometimes for three days, when lunchtime was over, I'd make an excuse to go to the bathroom so that I could go out and go into the trash cans and collect the food that nobody else wanted. And that was what we, what we kind of survived on. But as far as like high school, mm, I did well in high school. I did very well in high school. And you're talking about art. That is my, my gift from God. Um, I, I never thought that I was good enough to do art, but I am. And uh, I have done some artwork and I've published some paintings and things like that. So yeah, that was my big thing. So at 13, you go back to your dad's and it's not great. You got out of the sexual abuse. Right. Yes, I did. I got out of the sexual abuse. So in that, that part was good. Yeah, that part was good. Um, but my dad was a, you know, he was an alcoholic, but he worked. And uh, what I actually had done is because my dad was a very heavy gambler, he came home one night and he had just been, uh, robbed in the alleyway of the bar that he would attend. My dad never had a car in California, believe it or not. He worked for the Rapid Transit District and did all of the graphic designs for them way before. I mean, he did all the hand painting signs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I just would uh, go to the bar with him sometimes and sit there just to make sure he was okay and uh, sit there for sometimes two or three hours. Mm -hmm. yeah. I so, did that in the 70s. I yeah. 79, 80, early 80s, just go to the bar and hang out at the bar. Because <laughs> uh, 
that's a kid thing. You know, you don't, you don't, I'm going to ask you a question based on my own experience. Okay. I knew things weren't right, but right. I didn't have anything to compare them to. Like Correct. as a little kid, um, we, it was a predominantly Catholic neighborhoods that we, that I grew up in, but, mm -hmm. um, we weren't Catholic, but I always mm -hmm. knew that God existed and I mm -hmm. had this innate faith and I knew that things were really wrong. Right. Right. But I, I didn't know how or why or what that meant or if there were parts of it that were okay and parts of it that were like, I really, you right. don't have any life experience. And I remember even my best friend, her parents were married, very traditional. He smoked the pipe every day. He worked, she stayed home, always wore a skirt and sweater outfit, right. did all the cooking, a very upper middle class. We were way below poverty and I knew her house was different, but things weren't exactly right there either right right was it like that for you like you just don't know you don't know what you don't know i i just didn't know what i i didn't know what being a, a catholic was all about at the time i i knew that i had made my first holy communion and i knew that god was a part of my life but i guess because of the uh, grace that I could, that, that he gave me, like when I was in the foster care, I'll, I'll, t I'll just share this with you. When I was in the foster care system with the grandmother, I used to get these terrible earaches. Oh, they were horrible. And the old fashioned technique to take care of the pain was to roll up a newspaper, put the point in the ear and light it from the other end. Right. right. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that didn't work for me. So my grandmother just said, you know, I can't deal with this. You're just going to have to go to bed. And I went into bed and I curled up in a fetal position. I, I think I was a little over, I had just come to live with them. Probably I was about 10, I think. Okay. And, um, and I curled up in a, in a fetal position and I remember crying myself to sleep because the pain was so bad. But then I began to dream, I guess it is. And I saw myself coming up away from where I was sleeping. I could see myself sleeping on the bed and I went up through the roof of the house, mm -hmm. didn't understand that, went out into the darkness of the night, continued to go up, and all of a sudden I had two really beautiful angels on both sides of me. They were just absolutely beautiful. And as we got further up, I could hear this voice that had come closer that said, it's not her time, you need to take her back. And because of the voice being as beautiful as it was, I said, no, I want to go with you. Mm -hmm. And I, she said, no, when it, when, when this dream becomes a reality, you, you'll be coming up to me. Um, I took that as heaven later on, but not at the time. And so I went back to bed and um, I remember as we descended and I said, no, I want to go with you. And then I woke up the next morning and this is the honest to God's truth, Jen. I have never had another earache since that day ever ever, ever, ever. Wow. Never. And so, um, when I went to live with my dad, there was a sense of that presence with me all the time. And, uh, yeah. And I would talk to my dad. As a matter of fact, I got married the first time that I got married, I got married in a Catholic church, had all the bells and whistles and did everything that you're supposed to do. But I was 18. Uh, yeah. Was 18. <laughs> oh gosh. 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah, but that's another right away. You you mentioned I definitely want to talk about that. You mentioned that you lived with your dad when you were 13 and also that you found your mom when she had died yeah. when you yeah, were 13. My mom, my mom and I had developed a relationship um when they took me away from my mom. Mm -hmm. I didn't see my mom for a long time. My younger brother, who was 18 months younger than I was, mm -hmm. continued to live with her. And so when I, when I, when I arrived in the foster, when I arrived with my dad, there was a maturity, I guess, that had transpired. And my mom, who I didn't know at the time, was dying. In her physical body, she was dying because of all the alcohol. But I didn't get that. Right. But I had this compassion for my mom because I knew my mom was sick. And I felt bad that she was alone, even though my brother was with her. And my dad always said that he would never love another woman the way he loved my mom, even though they were divorced. And so one morning I got up and I was getting ready for school and I, I called my mom and 
she had this cough about her. And I said, you know, mom, I, I'll come over and see you after school. So my, from where my dad lived to where my mom lived, I would hop on the bike and I would drive down. It was a ride, ride down. It was probably maybe, I don't know, maybe a 10 or 15 minute bicycle ride. And uh, I got there and I knocked on the door and I could hear the dog barking, but nobody was answering the door. And it was this little tiny duplex. You, you go down this corridor and it's like only one pavement. And then on each side are all these duplexes, right? For as far as you can see, not in a very good part of town. Um, so it was a one bedroom duplex. And my mom, uh, you know, didn't answer the door so I could hear the dog. So I went around to the side of that little opening that's between her duplex and the next one. And I could see the side door open that led into the kitchen. And as I walked in, I could see my mom's feet from a distance, but I could see a bottle cap on the floor and a broken wine glass and a huge bottle of ripple wine on the, on the counter. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe, okay, she's, you know, she's passed out because I've seen her that mm -hmm. way before. And as I came around the corner, I looked at her and her eyes were uh, halfway open, but she had this film over her eyes. And I knew, I knew she was gone, but I didn't know what had happened. And so as fast forwarding as it is, it turned out that my mom died what they call of, um, a heart attack, actually, mm -hmm. secondary to cirrhosis of the liver. That's how my dad yeah. died. Yeah, that was her. I mean, that's how 42. I... She was 42. Oh. God. I mean, yeah, my dad was 53, yeah. but it's, it's like, yeah, the heart attack. <laughs> right. Like, right. give me a break, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were trying to say that, but it was actually the liver. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the heart probably stopped beating and there was a heart attack because it just couldn't keep up anymore. Right. I mean, exactly. I remember hearing that from the corner and being like, you're kidding me, right? Like, do right. I look that dumb? Mm -hmm. But I mean, essentially that is, that is yeah. what happens right. that they go, they go through the process of essentially a heart attack. Right. Um, but that's secondary to everything else. So exactly. yeah, you had to landline call. Mm -hmm. Did you call? Um, I actually, I actually was, I actually came out around the corner screaming and one of the neighbors came out and they figured out what was going on. They called the police and then my brother came and then my little brother who was not aware of what had happened and of course lived with my mom. That was really tough because he did, we had to explain to him that, you know, with all the police and first responders, he couldn't go in. And um, he realized too that, that mom was gone. So he, that's when he came to live with us, my dad and my brother, my older brother and then my, myself. So there was three of us living in an apartment with my dad after that. And were you close at all with the th four? There were seven of you total. Well, there was there was six of us. There was three six. girls and three boys. I'm the youngest okay. of the girls, and my half brother, uh, my my younger brother, is uh, youngest of the boys. And my older sister, my two older sisters were gone. My older brother was gone, and then there was my middle brother, and myself, and my little brother, and we lived with my mom when we first came to California. But then my middle brother, who couldn't handle the things with my mom, he left and went to live with my dad. And then he stayed okay. living with my dad until, until, oh gosh, um, kind of like I'm wondering now, that moment of filling in the blank. My dad, mm -hmm. my dad died exactly 10 years after my mom. And um, I was the caregiver for my dad. So my brother, I think my brother was married then. Um, he had just gotten married maybe two or three years before my dad passed away. My, my middle brother. How, how, yeah. so your dad was only like 52. Uh, he, my dad was actually 59 when he. Okay. So he was, uh, he was older yeah. than your mom. Yeah. Okay. And, um, what did he die from? He died of, um, lung cancer because he was a very heavy smoker. smoker. He died of lung cancer, which had, which had metastasized to his spine. So, uh, he yeah. was short of his 60th birthday. Yeah. So. Which is terribly sad. I mean, mm -hmm. ha I wouldn't wish that on anyone. It was also, I think, pretty common in mm -hmm. these generations um, because you can't, you can't abuse your body like that and not right. have right. repercussions. Right. 
13 to 18 years mm -hmm. old. Mm -hmm. You are great. You were good in high school. Mm -hmm. You liked high school. I did like high school. I liked, okay. I liked being away from the chaos of the house, the apartment. So yes, I did. And I, and, and I was good in my studies and I was good at art and I was good at, uh, we didn't have the kind of athlete athletics that they have now, but, yeah. uh, I was good at that, whatever was given. Swimming was the big thing, so I was a good swimmer, yeah. And then you graduate and get married kind of the same time. So who, how did you meet him? Yeah, I don't, I don't, Jen, to be honest with you, I don't think we have enough time. Okay, okay. Because it's going to be so crazy. But I, I met my first husband uh, when I was 15. Okay. And it was through his sister, who was my best friend in high school. Okay. And when I met him, he was uh, stationed in Vietnam. And he had actually signed up for Vietnam at the age of 17. And so mm -hmm. he was on his third tour of Vietnam when I met him. And I had never been with anybody. I didn't go to my prom. I mean, how do I say this? When you're sexually abused as a kid, you don't think about the physical aspects of being with anyone. And I kind of closed myself off to that. And, uh, but then when I met him, I, I can honestly say that I'd like to say that I was a virgin when I met him. Uh, but we got married. I was 18. He was just turned 19. And I became an, uh, an army wife at an age of 18. Because of his three tours in Vietnam, he was given what they call an award or, um, a prestigious position, presidential honor guard. So we moved to Washington, D.C. right after I got out of high school and took, re uh, took residence into a military housing office yep. and um, learned how to drive a stick shift in the snowing uh, rain and uh, got a job at the age of 20. Um, but I, I had a certain part of me that was really not a good part. I had a lot of rage that I didn't recognize unless someone crossed my path. And, uh, and I learned how to put that under control, but it was usually as a result of like, for example, I had a, a gal that really took to my husband when we got there, she was, she was in the military and she, she wasn't, she was not in the military itself, but she was one of the uh, girls that used to go to the NCO club. Mm -hmm. And she kind of took a liking to my husband and, uh, fast forward, uh, I had a connection with her and I literally, um, I literally went into the girl's restroom, locked the door and beat the crap out of her and left. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. And so mm -hmm. did my husband. So after that, I had to behave, I had to behave myself and I didn't, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to go back to the NCO club and, uh, but that was okay. That was all right. Yeah. yeah. So take me through. I know that you ended up, you got married in the Catholic church. It's a big deal. Anyone. I, and just because right. I was raised in a Catholic environment where right. well, I mean like 98% of the people were Catholic, right? The big deal. You can't get divorced. You have to go through this whole annulment process. I know that you have at least one child. I have two. I have a son and a daughter. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you had a son and a daughter with him. No, I had my daughter with him and I had my son with my second marriage. Okay. How did you get out of that marriage and why? And when? How, How did you... I get out of which marriage? The, the first, first time. Well, I, I ended up leaving him, not filing for a divorce, but actually leaving him because I found out, and this is really, uh, this is really a tough part for me, but um, I became pregnant right after we were married. And uh, I was very excited and I had planned a whole surprise thing with the dinner and uh, he didn't come home and oh. um, he didn't come, he didn't come home that evening from the base. And I was making calls, trying to find out, you know, what was going on. So he finally came in at around 10 o'clock at night and uh, I had this big surprise for him and I told him and he said, no, he says, we can't. You grew up poor, I grew up poor, and there's no way we could have this baby. And I, because I had, because I didn't know what love was, he said, if you really love me, you'll do what I ask. And needless to say, I ended up having the abortion. 
when I was 18. And um, that, that's a whole nother story because a spiritual walk that I went on with the guilt of that. But I know God has forgiven me for that. And I know that, that I, I, I know his love and mercy exists. So, uh, and I think about him every day. Um, but, in, uh, but when that happened, the point that I'm making is, is that my husband at the time, the reason he was late is because I found out that he had fathered a child in Vietnam with an army nurse and she had contacted him through his mother during the process of our marriage. And she was a very controlling woman. And she said, you know, you need to, you need to leave your wife and you need to go and be with this woman who has your baby. And of course he didn't want to do that. And so as a result, he didn't, but he went and he met her and he found out about his son. And, and I became angry later because I didn't find out about this until almost a year later. Um, oh. at home when we, he had gotten discharged from the army and, uh, we went back home and I had found out that all the money that I had received as a military wife, which I was sending home to his mom, she had spent all of it. And so we had to live with her for about six months. And during that time I had to go right, right to work. And I came home one night and I was really, really tired. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling good. And she was, uh, obsessive compulsive woman and she had this rule and she had made spaghetti and she had this rule you couldn't stack the plates on top of one another well coming from my dysfunctional childhood and then coming into a marriage where that became a rule did not set well with me and I was tired that day and uh, I said something to her and she says you know I could tell you something right now that would just tear you apart and I said really I said I don't think so and she said, yep, how'd you like to know that, the, that your husband has a son? And before she could get the word son out of her mouth, my husband at the time jumped up and tried to shush her, but I figured it out. I, I immediately figured it out, two and two together. And when I found that out, it just, it just crushed me because I, I took a life of my own that I wanted very bad because right. of what he was doing. So, yeah. Yeah, that probably all you that yeah. realization happened that yeah. you suffered because of something from yeah. his yeah. yeah. At what point how long did you did it take until you left that marriage? Right away. I I, oh, okay. I left him that night. I grabbed my shoes and grabbed my purse and went out the front door and that was it. Uh, ran all the way to my dad's place and that was it and uh, never went back. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that I didn't have contact with them. It just means that I never went back into a mm -hmm. married relationship with them. So now we're talking about a Catholic marriage and there was a second marriage. How long after did you remarry? And, and did you just do that outside of the Catholic church? I did. I did uh, do it outside of the Catholic church. Um, I, I left the church for a while because yep. I was angry, which I think is unfortunately very common yeah, but i had the grace I to understand that i needed to go back because that's that's where i knew i needed to be and uh so i didn't divorce right away i actually uh when my daughter turned 15 months because i got pregnant and when my daughter turned 15 months um she got very very sick and uh, i was actually in the nursing program and uh the day that we were taking our finals, uh, my daughter had to be put in ICU. And now you're talking in uh, early 70s. Yep. And uh, I went up to the instructor and I said, you know, I, I can't do this test. I can't. My daughter's in the hospital. I need to go. And basically, I was told that if you leave and you don't take the test, you got to start all over again. And I said, yep. fine. Being my attitude the way it was, I said, fine. I'll just do that. And um, so it wasn't until... I left my husband in 70, 74, because my daughter was born in 74, and I didn't, um, I did not, uh, we didn't file for a divorce or get a divorce until uh, late 70s, so. Okay, and then you, so you're a single mom with your daughter, does he have anything to do with her? No. Okay. Uh, well, I, no, let, let me rephrase that. Yes, he does. Um, today, uh, he lives in California, and uh, he has contact with her. Okay. But she doesn't have contact with me. So. Okay. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's I don't want to go into that, because that's That's okay. Story. Yeah. You wait, she's older, and you remarry, and you have your son. 
Mm-hmm. And I have my son and uh, uh, my husband uh, that, that is the father of my son. He uh, not Catholic. Um, so when we got divorced. Um, I met him while I was in law enforcement. That's when I entered law enforcement. And uh, when I entered law enforcement, the person that I'm married to now, I know this sounds really crazy. The person I'm married to now was a good friend of his. Right. And yet the person I'm married to now was also in a marriage that was very beautiful and solidified. And he was, you know, he was just a good example Mm -hmm. and he became my best friend. He became Mm -hmm. a good training officer. He was a good mentor. And when we got married uh, with the person that worked on the department and he knew um, he was our best man. So imagine how strange it was when I had to file for the get all these papers with his name on it as the best man. Oh my gosh. He ended up, yeah. He ended up right. divorced later on, later, later, later on. So, but we kept in contact through Christmas cards and stuff and then we lost contact and then we regained contact again. So what helped you get through everything? You became a nurse and then you went on to the force and that became your passion. Was that right. sort of right. what got you through everything? No, what got me through everything, Jen, was really actually my faith. I, I mean, like I said, God had a hold of it. I, I, it was my, it's, I think it was a combination more so of the faith, more so of the, my belief in God and my personality mm-hmm. and my independence and my makeup, my physical makeup. I just am not a quitter and I'm a fighter and um, I just, uh, and I'm very, very strong in my convictions and that's probably what did, but mostly it was God. Yeah. So you had your son and you ended up getting divorced a second time. Right. And I, I didn't, I didn't get to, I didn't file for the divorce. I actually, um, my, uh, husband, it's a long, long story, but he, he was just, there was some issues there and, uh, I could see it and I knew it and, it, uh, and I, I didn't want it in my life. And, uh, it's stuff that I ex- had experienced before. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I filed for a legal separation. And the day that I filed for the legal separation, he filed for, he counterfiled for the divorce, which told me that he wanted out anyway. Yep. So I just said, fine. And uh, I tried really hard to put it back together mm-hmm. because I was, I was thinking that that's what I needed to do. But fast forward to today, 19 years later, I look mm-hmm. back God will take people out of your life that are not good for you. And I believe that he took him out of my life because he wasn't good for me. And I I do believe that. That's a very interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about it from that direction. So as soon as you said that, I looked back (laughs) at people that are not in my life who weren't good for me and thought, how did they get removed? That's very interesting. So you, you have this um, career though that you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was good at it. I was good at it. And, uh, and, but, but I also recognize why that probably was given to me by God, because I had a call and I was cut loose uh, on my own. I was probably on my own for about an, uh, a year. And I had a, uh, we had an officer that was assigned to a rape case. And I was only the third female to be hired on the department. And I was only the female, the only female out in the field on that particular day. And, um, he, we have this thing called white channel where we, the officers can talk back and forth together and, Mm -hmm. and listening to white channel, I could tell that, that this officer that was assigned to this call wasn't getting the information that he needed to get. And so they decided that, well, let's dispatch a female and see what happened. So they dispatched me to the call and uh, it wasn't my call, but I was going to try to get some information. And I, I pulled up and uh, he said, you know, I don't, I've been trying to get some information from her for about 30 minutes. I can't do it. And so hope you can. And I said, okay. I said, well, where is she at? And he says, well, she's in the bedroom. I said, okay. So I walked into the bedroom and here's this little gal reminded me of me sitting on the couch, I mean, on the bed. And I said to her, I said, Hey, I said, you know, what's going on? I said, I know that some things are happening and, and stuff. And I said, can I, can I get you anything? And she said, no, very bluntly. No. And I said, okay. I said, do you mind if I sit next to you? And she said, she kind of shrugged her shoulders as if to say, I don't care. And I sat next to her and I said, you know, I said, I, I know how you feel. And 
it was like the devil came out and she turned to me and she says, you have no idea how I feel. And right then and there, God put it on my heart that I had to share with her a very personal thing. So I shared with her my experience. And within about 20 minutes, I had all the information I needed. Mm -hmm. I walked out and I gave it to the officer and he said, how did you get this information? I said, doesn't really matter. You have the information and you need to put the uncle under arrest. So that was it. I, I, I mean, how I'm female and she's female and you're a male and another mm -hmm. male violated her. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, instantly, why is she, it has nothing to do with him. It's like, why right. is she going to talk to you? Right. So did you, was your focus more on that afterwards? Um, yeah, my, was my focus more on law enforcement afterwards or her? No, you were in law enforcement, but you, were you assigned more cases with women? Did you get more involved with rape cases after that? I, I didn't get more involved with rape cases. I was just good at what I did in the field. I, I, I worked undercover. I worked vice. I was good at, at, at figuring out situations because the underlying cause of a lot of the stuff that I was involved in was sexual abuse, drugs, all of that stuff. And I could, and I could see it. And you knew it. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, we all pick the thing I think that heals us and that we're good at because of our past mm -hmm. experience. So right. you and I grew up in very similar environments and I became a foster parent and have 18 kids and you went into law enforcement. God and bless I, you for that, by the way. <laughs> God bless you for yeah. that. I mean, we do yeah. that thing yeah. where, I mean, in part, we're trying to pay it forward and mm -hmm. make a difference in other people's lives. Right. And we're in those situations because we get those people that we are working with. Right, 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 and, right yeah. exactly. And, and you became a foster parent of 18 kids. I became kind of like a foster parent of like all of the kids on the Explorer program that were young, all of the kids mm -hmm. out in the field that I would come across, that I would have interactions with. And, and after I, I got out of law enforcement, I, I worked as, uh, as a pilot program for the gangs in the schools. But I could connect with yeah. them. Yep. I, I, I just could connect with them. I knew. I, I remember thinking at one point, like there's never been a file, you know, when you get a file on a kid, just like you would get a file in right. the police force. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I would get a file as a foster parent and there's nothing in that file I hadn't been through. Yeah. Maybe not to the same extremities, the same situation. Like, you know, there's, there's differences definitely in the right. story, right. but like check, mm -hmm. check, check. And it's the same with you. And so yeah. we, we, I love those stories where, uh, we heal ourselves. I had a pastor once tell me, tell me if you've had this experience. He said, you've done this because it healed your little girl. You know, I hear that. I've, I've heard that. I, I, yeah, I've heard that. I, I don't know if it's a matter of healing the little girl, but it's a matter of defending the little girl. Something. There was something yeah. in that. You're correct. I don't yeah. think it's spot on, yeah. but yeah. I think we, you're right. We yeah. become valiant for yeah. the little girl. Right. Um, become, yes. That same you become thing. become their advocate and yep. stuff. And that's, that's, that's what it boils down to. Especially because these are people, regardless of their age or exactly mm -hmm. what the situation is, they need somebody to help them find their voice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I stuck up for that girl in juvenile hall. Yeah. I mean, she was unique and wasn't standing up for herself and uh, be damned if I was going to stand there and watch people beat the crap out of her. So exactly. And exactly. I, was only, I was only seven at the time. So, you know, you, Isn't you that crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. But, but I, I know this isn't about you per se, but I will tell you this right now. I will never forget this interview, even if I never <laughs> talk to you again. And I will always, always give, remember you in prayer because for you to be a foster care parent, that's because I'm pretty sure you were a good one. I loved it. Yeah, I was. And I feel the same way about you in the police yeah. force. I mean, I think we just, we're each other's people. Right. You're my tribe, right? Mm -hmm. And so we get each other. Oh, I get you. I knew immediately, oh, I'm going to get her. Um, right. So tell me what, I know you were the defender of the little girl. I want to tie up on a happy note. And we have, because yeah. here yeah. you got through situations. You ended up, yeah. who cares if it was your best man and 19 years later and all of right. that stuff. Right. It takes us more than, I'm on my fourth serious relationship. You're on your third at least. I mean, right. Right. it takes us some time to figure that out when you come from that much damage. Right. And it's right. not intentional. Mm -hmm. 
what would you have told the little girl? What would you have done differently? What do you pass on to other people? But what would I have told the little girl myself, the little yeah, girl? Yeah. I would have said, I would have told myself, you know, um, things will definitely get better. Mm -hmm. Don't give up, per persevere, because there's something good waiting for you at the end. And as long as you focus on that and, and you, and you, when you go towards that, things will be good. And, and that's what I've had to do. I just, I just know that there's, another day there's a new day and i know that god has got my back i think that's the biggest thing because he's had my back for a long long time i just didn't recognize who he was until later in life lynn thank you so much for coming on and sharing oh, you're your welcome. story you're welcome and i and i like i said and i meant what i said because i'm a very honest person but i will definitely remember you jen and god bless you 100%. god bless you too thank so, yeah. you so thank you very much and have a good evening